Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers. Today. farmers today. Be jumping That's at Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello there. Jane McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. I'm looking forward to spending the next half an hour with you. Coming up on the show today, Australian Meatworks may need to continue vaccinating their staff with AstraZeneca despite the concerns of side effects for people under 50 years old. That's according to the industry's peak body. And it's a difficult topic for many farmers. What to do with your land when you retire, especially if you have more than one child. You'll hear about the importance of succession planning. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. New Zealand has announced this week that it will phase out the export of livestock by sea within two years. More than 90,000 dairy cows were shipped to China last year, although the trade was suspended in September after the Gulf Livestock 1, which was carrying 53 crew and 6,000 cattle, sank in waters southwest of Japan. New Zealand Minister for Agriculture Damien O'Connor spoke at a press conference this week. The export of livestock from New Zealand uh, has been a feature of our farming systems for a long time. Uh, Changes were made in 2008 to halt the export of livestock for slaughter. Uh, Since that time, there has been a steady flow of exports for breeding purposes. But concerns about the risk to New Zealand's reputation from this trade have been steadily increasing. We began the 2019 Livestock Export Review uh, to look at what options were available to address the risks to our reputation. We received a lot of feedback uh, from that review, including from our independent National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee, who recommended the trade stop. The tragic sinking of the Gulf Livestock One ship in 2020 uh, brought the dangers to a head and we introduced a temporary ban on livestock exports while the Heron Review recommended improvements uh, to our system. Although many of these have been implemented, there remains an ongoing level of concern uh, with the welfare of these animals while at sea for up to three weeks. Over recent years, we've seen some of the reports from these ships, many of which are not designed for live exports, where conditions on board have led to many adverse animal welfare outcomes. The fact is that once animals leave New Zealand by sea, we have very limited ability to ensure their well-being before they reach their destination. That's why this morning we're announcing that the export of livestock by sea will cease following transition period of up to two years. That was New Zealand Minister for Agriculture, Damien O'Connor. Wayne Langford is chair of the New Zealand Federated Farmers Dairy Group and he says the announcement caught a lot of dairy farmers by surprise. Yeah, well, I'd have to say we're a little bit surprised, really, that, it, that it's come out um, now and uh, and they've decided to go down this route. But um, that is what it is now, and, and we'll work through it, see what it means for us. So the live export trade was under review uh, and it had been suspended last year after the, the, the sinking of Gulf Livestock 1. Despite that, had you been hoping that the, the, the trade would continue? I, I, I don't necessarily know about hoping, but, but probably I'm um, just expecting... Uh, that it was because 
really we, we hadn't really seen any any reason for it not to, um, and nothing pop up, and certainly nothing that had come through, uh, you know, feed, uh, federal farmers uh, ranks. So uh, so hence why we were a little bit surprised at today's announcement. Uh, the Minister for Agriculture, Damien O'Connor, emphasised uh, concerns about the risks to New Zealand's reputation if live export by sea was to continue. Uh, what did you make of that? Yeah, you know, he's got a point. It does only take one bad video or, you know, a couple of bad photos to make it to make it all look pretty bad. And um, and I know you guys and Aussies have kind of been through that yourselves. So, uh, but then on, on, on the other side of that is, is that my understanding was that, that the standards had been lifted um, and were much higher and that, that those sort of things shouldn't have happened. So sort of a flip of a coin really around yeah, where it was all going to end. So just finally, Wayne, we've only just had this announcement, but how do you think uh, dairy farmers will be uh, digesting it? Oh, well, it's a bit of a polarising issue here in, in, in New Zealand, to be fair. So, um, you know, obviously some, some will be quite in favour of the decision and, and others um, it's going to have quite an impact on, on their business and their livestock sales. So there'll be, you know, there'll be a varying thoughts. And like I said, it's, it's kind of the initial stages and a bit of a surprise, I'd say, to most farmers. So they'll be just now working out uh, what they are going to do, I think, the, the fact that the government, government's given them a, a two-year kind of wind-down will help that process and, and help the farmers kind of work through it. But um, just in the short term, yeah, they'll be certainly um, analysing what they're going to do. That was Wayne Langford, chair of the New Zealand Federated Farmers Dairy Industry Group, and he was speaking with Angus Verley. Angus also spoke with Emma Higgins. She's a dairy analyst with Rabobank, and she says the impending live export ban represents a great opportunity for Australian dairy farmers. Yeah, absolutely. So across the course of 2020, we saw, you know, over 90,000 heifers exported, which is a huge jump compared to where we've been in in previous years. And a lot of that comes back to the fact that China's on a bit of a growth spree when it comes to expanding their dairy herd. And we've seen New Zealand really look to fulfil um, a major part in terms of helping to, to build that herd up. But, you know, Australia historically has played you know, quite a key position in terms of supplying heifers as well. And so I guess that's the good news for Australian exporters and, and, you know, dairy producers as well, is that there is an opportunity there, perhaps for some farmers, to fill the gap that New Zealand will, will leave when they exit this industry. And I wanted to ask about that, Emma, because we've got uh, Australian dairy farmers listening to this. So how how substantial is that opportunity for them to, to, to jump in and, and fill this void? Yeah, well, I guess the the challenge Chinese buyers is that um, you know the Australian dairy industry in, in a rebuilding period, you know, the national herd is low, and good news for farmers is that milk price profits are really, really good, and profitability on the whole is really quite strong compared to prior years. So there will be those competing forces that Chinese buyers and procurers will need to. I guess, come to the table and um, they'll have to pay more for stock, effectively. So that's good news for Australian dairy farmers. So there are some really buoyant opportunities out there, I think, um, and particularly given the timing around the signalling for New Zealand stepping back, we know that um, you know, in terms of the timing, there could be some breeding programmes that may sift for Australian producers to, to get the most out of this. And is Australia in pole position or are there other countries that could also jump in? around perhaps some South American countries looking to also come to the party. 
But at this point in time, you know, it's very much genetics dependent and supply chains dependent. So, you know, alternatives from outside of this part of the world are somewhat more limited. So Australia certainly plays the the box seat in this point in time. Uh, So I guess, Emma, to put the opportunity for Australian dairy farmers in perspective, if if New Zealand dairy farmers exported, I think, around that 90,000 head of dairy heifers last year, how many dairy heifers did Australian farmers export? Yes, yeah, so last year Australian dairy farmers exported around 71,000 heifers, so certainly a little bit less than what we shipped last year. But the reality is that Australia has often shipped much more than New Zealand. For example, in 2019, Australian exporters shipped double what New Zealand exporters did. So in 2019, they shipped 89,000, whereas in New Zealand, we just shipped 40,000. So the reality is that Australia really has played that prime role in going forward. There's a lot of opportunity for exporters, we think, um, providing that the, the stock is available. So just finally, it looks like maybe there had been starting to be a shift toward New Zealand, but now that's, uh, I guess you'd assume, going to come back to Australia. That's right. So there is that two-year transitional period, and at this point in time, the the finer dates of when we're going to stop exporting are still to be decided. Um, But at this point in time, we know that there's a period of up to two years where New Zealand can continue before handing over effectively to other countries and, and possibly Australia. That was Rabobank dairy analyst Emma Higgins. She was speaking with Angus Furley. And in a statement, Australia's Agriculture Minister David Littleproud said Australia had no plans to suspend or ban live animal exports and it was a matter for New Zealand. He also said the federal government is confident in its standards, regulations and laws to ensure high standards of animal welfare for livestock exports. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Australian Meatworks may need to continue vaccinating their staff with AstraZeneca, despite the concerns of side effects for people under 50 years old, according to the industry's peak body. A woman in her 40s who was vaccinated in Western Australia has recently contracted a rare and potentially deadly thrombosis linked to the vaccine, following another case of a 44-year-old man in Melbourne. Patrick Hutchinson is from the Australian Meat Industry Council and he says due to abattoirs often rural locations, Pfizer's ultra-cold temperature storage requirements may mean AstraZeneca is the only realistic option. Like any industry, having to deal with the change uh, or continual change in the rollout, in the structure, in what vaccine is most appropriate based on people's age and, and the like that we've seen over the past week. So... I certainly uh, have not been receiving any sort of negative feedback from our total membership across Australia, be they, you know, red meat processing, pork processing, small wood manufacturing. But uh, in saying that, obviously, the continual change does make an overall impact. And one of those that we, you know, that we're just trying to work through at the moment is figuring out the impact of AstraZeneca not being supported as a vaccine for those under 50 years of age, which in turn means moving to the Pfizer vaccine, which needs to be underpinned by a hub structure, uh, which is a little difficult in rural and regional Australia. So 
we're just working through that as uh, as we go at this at this time. Have you heard any concerns coming from any of your members about the fact that some of the workforce has already started to receive AstraZeneca? Have the, have you heard of any situations where employees are now being more hesitant to undertake the vaccine? Certainly not. No, I um, I, I think that we could all assume that currently in Australia, based on the the way in which uh, the media has been. Uh, presenting and providing information in regards to uh, vaccines and vaccine issues, that uh, there would be people in the community that uh, would be concerned about how that would work and how that's going to affect them and uh, you know, uh, having some fear around that. But that being said, uh, we haven't been in any way uh, had any members come back to us or, in fact, employees come back to us to say uh, that they've got a concern. So at this time... Our role is to ensure that we can represent our members effectively across six states and two territories in regards to how the different rollouts are occurring, what sort of vaccination stockpiles that we have, how our meat processing, pork processing and small goods manufacturing industry under 1B is being managed and uh, how that then all links to getting through 1B, and then turning our attentions to everyone else in the community and uh, their requirements for vaccination. About this time last year, the community of Colac in southwest Victoria was going through quite a crisis uh, due to outbreaks in that town, including some of the businesses such as the abattoir. As of last week, Australian Lamb Colac say that almost half of their 700 staff have now been given their first vaccine. Realistically, would the industry be weighing up the risks considering the problems that were, that they faced last year and AstraZeneca or having a vaccine at all was probably better than nothing? Look, potentially uh, uh, that, that, that may well be the case. But again, this is an issue and we've got to remember that COVID-19 has an impact on the processing industry, the meat processing industry, uh, is in fact uh, an issue, is a community issue. So it's, if it's not controlled in the community, we, as an industry, have a high risk of, of impact, and that high risk of impact is due to the fact that you know a cold environment and close uh, close working quarters. But that's that's it. We don't gestate the disease uh, within the facility, nor is it a, a scenario that um, you know that has been debunked about lasting on surfaces or or the like. So, what we want to be making sure of is that our workers. Um, it's about getting our workers vaccinated so that they don't bring it from the community to the actual workplace. It's not about vaccinating them because there is an issue at the workplace. And unfortunately, uh, we've had to continue to keep reminding uh, government, state and federal, and also reminding community around that, including unions. You know, it is very clear, and that is, is that as a community-borne virus, if it's not controlled in the community, which we saw in Victoria, then our industry can be impacted. When it is controlled in the community, which was every other state and territory in Australia, it has no impact at all on our industry. That was Patrick Hutchinson from the Australian Meat Industry Council. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. And Jane McNaughton with you today on Countrywide. Now, the price of selling cattle is at an all-time high. That's according to the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, which is the industry's gauge on the market. Known simply as the Eki, it passed 900 cents to a kilogram for the first time in history. 
That's almost 200 cents up on the same time last year. Reporter Angus Verley spoke with Matt Dalgleish from Thomas Elder Markets about the historic occasion. Oh, look, Angus, it was something that we'd been looking at for a while. We'd, we'd kind of expected at some stage, given the northern rains we'd seen, that we could see this move above 900 cents. We we briefly nearly got there um, a week or so ago. We got to 896 and then it backed away a little bit. But um, I just think that intent to restock is, is just too strong, particularly in those parts of the north now. And they're you know, kind of getting some rain too and, and, and they've taken off a bit. So it's kind of pushed along. So for you, is it just a natural consequence of excellent seasonal conditions, restocker demand, feedlotter demand, all of those things coming together? That's right, and obviously the, the very tight supply we've had for the last few years, you know, lowest, lowest herd in nearly 30 years, I think it is, Angus. So, um, uh, so yeah, that's a combination of all those factors that you've just outlined that have you really got the, um, the rocket under, under, in particular, young cattle prices. What does it mean for, for the different players in the supply chain when we have got cattle prices so high? Because we have heard a lot from, from processors in recent times saying that these prices aren't sustainable. So, so what does it mean for the whole supply chain? Oh, a great question, actually. And it's very timely because on Thomas Elder Marcus, we just put up our beef processor margin model uh, for March. And that's shown exactly uh, what the processors have been saying, um, that it's a very tough in- environment. It's obviously not just um, young cattle prices that are... At record highs, we're also seeing pretty high prices all across the, you know, the, the cattle types and indeed right the way through to finished steers. Um, so that's meant that you know, along the supply chain, particularly for processors, it's a very difficult time. And, and the margin showing for the last three months, they've been losing in, in excess of $300 per head of, of animal slaughtered, according to that model. Um, so the, the, the kind of, I guess, the worst margins we've seen on a monthly basis for as long as that, in, uh, that uh, particular model goes back to, which is the 2000s. And now we hear processors say that they can't can't sustain these prices. So will we see processors drop out? Uh, look, if you look back historically, um, and AMPC uh, did a really good work on, on a similar type model to the one Thomas Elder Market used in terms of um, theoretical beef processor, and they compared times when we had negative margin and what happened to processors when they were extended periods of negative margin, and it definitely lines up with that um, analysis that shows processors did actually close down. Um, and you know some some for a temporary uh, you know kind of situation, but obviously some close down permanently. Uh, I think as this extends, we're certainly going to see some of the temporary windbacks and reduces of you know, reducement of shifts and stuff, uh, which we're already seeing. Indeed, some lines in Victoria for some abattoirs have shifted down from three lines to one. I'd expect for some of the maybe smaller, less efficient processes, it's going to be a really tough decision um, that they're facing in the next few months. That was Matt Delgleish, Manager of Commodity Market Insights at Thomas Elder Markets, and he was speaking with Angus Verley. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Now, in the farming world, discussions about succession planning are happening just about everywhere these days. And this week, the conversation took to Twitter when a farm production advisor named Chris Walsh tweeted that he believed children who don't want to be on the farm shouldn't be entitled to any land. It triggered a pretty lively discussion with people sharing all sorts of different theories and success stories, as well as some horror stories about what their family had had to go through. Rural reporter Angus Verley had a chat with Chris about his tweet and the Twitter storm that followed. Yeah, look, it's something that had been brought up in a recent conversation with some people that I know they're getting close to retirement the um, the mother and father 
and they've got um, six or seven kids, um, big family, um, and they're getting to the point of retirement and, um, you know, and moving into the local town and everything like that. And uh, one of the issues that was brought up was, you know, how do we divide the, the farm up amongst all the kids when they when they retire? And it was quite interesting because only a couple of those kids were actually interested in, in staying on the farm and the rest weren't. And, and it sort of stuck with me. I thought to myself, geez, land is so bloody hard to, to come by, especially when you're young, that um, to be offering it to um, people who aren't actually interested in farming it, I thought was just a, um, something that I hadn't actually considered. And, um, yeah, and, you know, as you do on Twitter, you come up with something interesting and you throw it out there and see what reception you get. And, um, yeah, it really sort of stirred up a... a, a bit of conversation and there's been a lot of a lot of points of view put put forward you got an enormous response to your tweet chris literally hundreds of uh, of, of responses uh, and a real variety of views what did those responses say to you i suppose about the complexity of succession planning uh you're right it's just complex but i think what i took away was that there are a real diversity of views out there and there's been some absolute um, success stories on where it's gone well and there's been some absolute disasters and you know where people have spoken about families being torn apart but the one thing that really stood out to me was that every time people took the long view where they basically started to talk about succession planning when their kids are young and continued that conversation through that seemed to be something that worked and look, I, I still firmly believe um, after reading everyone's responses and, and responding to a lot of people that um, mum and dad should be paid out for their hard work. You, you are giving your kids a leg up simply by being able to offer them the land outside of the open market, I think. I think that that's fair, but I also still have the belief that uh, anyone that's not specifically interested in, in farming, I don't see the value in them being offered assets only for them to then you know, basically on-sell that and make a a real good amount of money out of it um, without actually having any interest in farming. But in saying that, there were so many stories that just didn't fit into that nice little neat box. That was Farm Production Advisor Chris Walsh speaking with Angus Fairley. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Imagine a cheese that can sit in a packet in the cupboard for 18 months and it's ready to be used when you open it. A quick-thinking dairy goat farmer whose restaurant orders dried up overnight during COVID-19 restrictions came up with a solution. Freeze-dried goat's feta. Jennifer Nichols has the story. Hello, girls. Hello. Anyone who claims that goats will eat anything hasn't met Karen Lindsay's pampered herd. High in the hills of Wamuran, just north of Brisbane, these discerning does only accept the very best grain, hay and chaff. Every one of the 45 Sarnen, British Alpine and Toggenberg dairy goats is known by name, not number. Zella, Amy. And most of them come running to be milked when they're called. Come on. As soon as they're born, they've got a name. And how emotionally attached do you get to to the stage where if I'm losing one, I know I can't save it, I'll sit there and cry with it in my arms until she goes and then I'll sob like a child. Yeah, yeah, terrible. I shouldn't be in this game. 
I shouldn't, but I am. School teacher for about 30 years, on and off, and decided to get two goats. I don't know why, I think we thought it was novel, let's get a goat. So we knew the health benefits of milk. That was 16 years ago. Good girl. Initially, Good girl. cheese wasn't the obvious solution to surplus milk. Because I didn't even like goat cheese. I hated goat cheese. <laughs> But I thought, we've got milk, what can I do? I've done custard, I've done ice cream, I've done yoghurt. That was revolting. So we thought, we'll do cheese. And from the minute we did that, I was hooked. Hooked, gave up teaching, bought a buck, and that's where we are today. Now every drop is needed to keep up with demand. In a refrigerated room, the process begins to transform it into a wood-winning feta. So pasteurised milk... Then you have to wait till it cool it, till it gets to the right temperature, add your culture and rennet, stir it, and I leave my cheese overnight. The next day, the whey is drained off and kept for a pet food manufacturer. The cheese goes into baskets to drain. It takes 200 litres of milk and several days to make a 120 kilogram batch. And because this is a really, really soft feta, Maybe later tonight, early in the morning, I'll come down and start flipping them over. So I'll do that for two days and then I put them into brine. Karen adds Australian-grown garlic, olive oil and pepper to make marinated Persian feta. Eight years ago, she plucked up the courage to get accreditation and start selling little white goat cheese. When I started, I didn't have any belief in myself. But who's going to eat my cheese? And like, even last night at Meet the Makers... The number of people who ate it and the response, it makes you feel good. Meet the Makers was organised by the Food Agribusiness Network, or FAN, a cluster group with 320 members representing the entire food chain, from small producers and value-adders to large manufacturers in the Moreton Bay, Sunshine Coast, Noosa and Gympie Council regions. 75 members showcased their products to more than 500 buyers and passionate foodies. The Food Agribusiness Network focuses on strength through collaboration. We've got 80 of our members here today exhibiting their amazing produce and food. Emma Greenhatch is FAN's CEO. Our businesses are in there supporting each other. They're not just competing, they're cooperating and they're finding a whole heap of different ways to do that, like making new products together, distributing together, finding new market channels together, and that's quite special and unique to this region. Have you tried Meet the Maker was where Stuart and Lisa Bell first met Karen Lindsay two years ago. The two-hatted chef and his wife run fine dining restaurant Harry's on Budrum. Little white goat cheese always features on their menu. This entree combines feta with charred peach, green beans, frika, which is green harvested, boiled and toasted durum wheat, and a walnut vinaigrette. Stuart Bell's also experimenting with Karen Lindsay's latest product, what's believed to be the world's first freeze-dried goat's feta. This is a rhubarb parfait compote. The award-winning chef layers ribbons of fresh apple on baked apple sorbet and a syrupy fruit sauce, adding caramelised apple, poached rhubarb and a sprinkle of freeze-dried goat's feta. It's a versatile cheese. So we use it for the uh, entrees, the savoury, and then we also use it as a sweet element as well, especially the little uh, freeze-dried one there works well on the desserts. I wouldn't have even thought of that. Yeah, that's no, good. Yum. COVID-19 lockdowns forced Karen Lindsay to think outside the square. Freeze-drying preserved her product. 
every restaurant shut. So my orders went to nothing, absolutely nothing. So the girls don't stop producing milk. I'd heard of a cheddar being freeze-dried in America and I knew someone who worked in a freeze-dried business and she said, come bring some up, see what it's like. And uh, we fell in love. Over 24 hours, 98% of the moisture content is extracted. The crumble's flavour is intense. And it sits in your pantry for 18 months. No refrigeration, no reconstituting. Take it out of the packet, add it to anything. Pastries, pizzas, pasta, salads. Eat it, just eat it. <laughs> Many of its buyers live in outback Australia. I've actually had a lot of cattle stations because they can't get out to buy their fresh dairy. So having that in the cupboard is a little bit special, even if they chuck it on a steak sandwich or whatever. Heaven! Come on! Dairying's demanding work. Come on! Year before last, it was the first holiday in 15 years. We'd booked for 10 days and I think we came back on day eight because I was, I missed them. How much love do you get out of them? Oh, sometimes more than people give you, I think. You can be cranky, you can be swearing, you can be in a bad mood, you can be miserable, crying, and one or more of the girls will come up and just put their head on your shoulder and it just takes it all away. It's worth it. Yeah, it just makes everything worth it. <laughs> that was Karen Lindsay and one of her goats ending that report. That's all for the program today. If you're keen to learn some more about the world of agriculture, head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural. I look forward to your company the same time next week on Countrywide.